0: marketing can be an incredible force for good it can inspire and motivate and make our world more just equitable and inclusive but too often marketing perpetuates the status quo for a select few rather than disrupting it for the greater good of all this show looks to change that join me your host erica mills barnhart as we usher in a new era of marketing an era of marketing for good Hello, listener. Thank you for being here with me today. This episode features Lisa Cron, And I have to say, you'll hear me say it in the episode, but I had a fangirl moment. I'm not going to lie. I have followed Lisa's work for a long time um, and really appreciate her ability to make storytelling really practical and ground it in neuroscience and biology and, you know, to move it kind of out of the space of like, you should tell a story once upon a time to like, there's a reason that stories work based on how we are hardwired. She does a beautiful job of explaining why like data doesn't work, especially if you lead with data. I don't know where my mind went as I was thinking about my conversation with Lisa after is you know, we just we, we, we got uh, we got sold a story that PowerPoints and charts and, and numbers and all the rest of it are, is what we're going to like help people understand and connect on and the rest of it. And then I literally got this image of like cave people trying to like, you know, so what they're making some sort of strategic decision about where to move on the tundra. I don't know what kind of strategic decisions they were making, to be quite honest, but I'm sure that they did. And it wasn't like they didn't pause. They weren't like, hey, well, you know, I whipped up this PowerPoint presentation, check out my bars and graphs. Like that is just not how, (laughs) that's not how we're wired. And the hardware that we're working with in our brain isn't that different. It has evolved a bit over the past couple millennia, but not that much. So, I don't know. Once, once you really get comfy with like uh, the context of our brains, how far and yet how how not far at all they have come, I think story takes on different meaning and it makes sense in a business context in ways that are in particular important right now, as we emerge from COVID into whatever this new era is going to be. So, With this image of cave people busting out PowerPoint presentations, I want to welcome you to my conversation with Lisa Kron. Welcome to this episode of the Marketing for Good podcast. Today, I have with me Lisa Kron, who just very graciously told me how to pronounce her name properly. So thank you, Lisa. Lisa is the author of Wired for Story, Story Genius, and Story or Die, her latest book. Her TEDx talk, Wired for Story, opened Furman University's 2014 TEDx conference, and Lisa now is a story coach, author, and speaker. Prior to that, however, she spent a decade in publishing and has been a literary agent, television producer, and story analyst for Hollywood Studios. Since 2006, she's been an instructor in the UCLA Extension Writers Program, And she has been on the faculty of the School of Visual Arts MFA program in Visual Narrative,
1: interesting,
0: in New York City. In her work as a private coach, Lisa Lisa works with writers, nonprofits, educators, and other organizations, helping them master the unparalleled power of story. If you are intrigued, and this will be the show notes to learn more about Lisa, you can find her at wiredforstory.com. Thank you, Lisa, so much for joining me today.
1: Oh, it's my utter pleasure. I'm so happy to be here.
0: <laughs> I am having a fangirl moment, I have to say, because I have loved, loved, loved your work since I read Wired for Story. Thank
1: you. Thank I don't you. know how
0: many years ago that was, but... Um, it, was, it, was, it was, it came out in 2012. Okay. Yeah. Well, and by the way, then you have been busy. I mean... Indeed. That's a, yeah, indeed. That's a, that's a lot of words you've put out
1: into the world. I know. I look at it sometimes and I'm sort of stunned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's word by word. So it's kind of like, yeah, that is a lot.
0: <laughs> well, you, I mean, what I fell in love with and has remained true in my mind, I'll just say, so I'm listening to, to story or die. And I, you know, I'm listening. I'm not walking, you know, in the evenings. And it, <laughs> I realized that I was walking and being like, yes, exactly. That's exactly right. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Erica, you were like, you're talking out loud. I was talking out loud because I was so Vociferously agreeing with so many points, so I'm trying. I'm trying to keep that in check, you know, a little bit more. Um, But through your book, I was not able to because it just—it's so so much of it is so spot on, and that's always what I've loved about you is your ability to make story matter in really concrete ways.
1: Yay! Thank you.
0: Yeah, I mean, you have honestly, you have so much wisdom to offer listeners of this podcast. So I, I was trying to get strategic about how we could like glean glean the gold in a finite period of time. And where I want to go is to work through a set of what I'm calling chronisms, which is quotes from you. Um, But I want to start by asking you to talk about and just before we came on air, we we a little bit started dipping into this. so I'm super intrigued by your response about your views on the connection between story and marketing and especially you know, marketing for good, meaning marketing that makes the world a better place.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What do you see as the connect? There's overlap, which is why I'm asking. And so, I just love to hear you talk about that to open things up.
1: Okay. Um, well, here's the thing: story really is the only way to convince anybody of anything. So, when you're marketing, whether you're marketing for good or ill, the only way to actually do that is through story. And I think that that one of the things that throws people off when even just hearing something like that is our conception of story. In other words, when we hear the word story, we think, tell me a story, or I'm going to watch a movie, or I'm going to read a novel. We think of story as entertainment. And that's not what story is. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about story. Story is something that is literally wired into our brains. It's it's part of our brain architecture. We think in story and we think in narrative. And the reason that we are so pulled into stories, talking about, again, whether you're watching a movie or reading a novel or listening to somebody talk about something that happened to them last week or, or a pitch or reading a mission statement, is we are all wired to look for the exact same thing, which is... How is that going to help me mm-hmm. get through the night? How does that relate to me? Because we think in story, think of it, think of it this way. There's nothing that we ever think about, whether it's a you know big idea or abstract concept or or any sort of a generalization we don't we don't really think about those things because it's something that we literally. As humans made up, there is no general, there is no abstract. When we get any sort of a fact or any sort of anything that someone's telling us that's hoping it will change our behavior, what our brain does is we spin that fact into narrative so we can see how that fact will affect us, boots on on the ground, in our lives, given our agenda. We think, is it going to help us? or is it gonna hurt us? Is it gonna get us closer to what we want or is it gonna get us further away? So that in other words, we think in story and that means that when you're trying to convince anyone of anything, again, good or bad, Mm. you have to really figure out what their story is, or their their target group, what their narrative is, and then come up with a story that speaks story to story. But the point is, is that we think in story, the reason that we love stories so much, I mean, the, the irony is, is the reason we don't really understand the power of story It is because we love them so much. And we tend, you know, to think of story as something that's, that's auxiliary. You know, you come home after a, you know, a hard day of work doing real things in the real world. And, you know, what do you do? You turn on the TV. I mean, Of course, this is back in the day when we did go out, but now it's like when we come out of our office and, you know, we go into, we put on the hat of now I'm home and I'm, I'm relaxing. You know, you pick up a novel, you start watching a movie because you want to, you know, lose yourself in the world of make-believe. So it's very easy to think of story as something that is wonderful, but again, it's optional. You know, so if we didn't have stories, our lives would be far drabber, but we'd have survived just fine. And that just couldn't be further from the truth. Story was more crucial to our evolution than our beloved and you know much touted opposable thumbs. Because all opposable thumbs do is let us hang on. It's story that tells us what to hang on to. And I think the biggest problem that we have is twofold. You know, when we're trying to embrace story now, and as I'm sure all of you have seen out there, there is a big movement to, you know, story. And and when you're selling something, do you know the story? And do you know people's story and how to create story? The problem is, again, that we think of story as soft Science. We think of story as auxiliary. I'm going to give someone the facts. They're going to understand those facts. And then if they don't quite get the facts because they're not being rational and logical, we can, you know, doll it up with a story so that they maybe feel something. And and that's sort of the secondary thing to do. And the truth is, one of the biggest lies we've told, and there are many, it's that we make sense of things through facts and logic. We mm-hmm. don't wired to. We absolutely don't. We make sense of things based on how that rational analysis, that logic makes us feel. So
0: this is like Jill Bolt Taylor, who said, although many of us think of ourselves as thinking creatures that feel biologically, we were feeling creatures that think, 100%. Which, which you, I'm just going to quote you now, Lisa say we make every decision based on emotion, because emotion telegraphs meaning. If we couldn't feel emotion, we we couldn't make a single rational decision. That's so interesting. That's not a metaphor, that's biology. So I'm Uh going to repeat that last bit. If we couldn't feel emotion, we couldn't make a single rational decision. Say more about that. That's so different than uh, I think many of us think about things.
1: It's a hundred percent true. Do you mind if I give you an example? I can give you Yes, uh, please. uh, Yeah. Let let me give you the example. And this comes from um, there's a a really amazing neuroscientist named Antonio Damasio. Mm -hmm. And Mm he, he teaches at USC, he's written several books, and he frequently writes about a patient. He had a man by the name of Elliot and Elliot was one of these really successful guys. He had a great job. He had a great family. He was like, one of those people you'd call the pillar of his community. Unfortunately, he also had a brain tumor. Now, it was benign, and surgeons were able to remove all of it. But to do that, they had to take some of his prefrontal cortex. And after that, like, he recovered. I mean, he was physically hale and hardy, but he wasn't himself anymore. And he had lost his job. He'd lost his family. He lost all his mm-hmm. money to con men. He was, he was living at home with his parents. And the government was about to cut off his disability checks because they thought, this guy's a malingerer. And so the family brought in Damasio and they said, like, you know, what's going on here? Like, did the operation just somehow unleash his latent laziness or is there something else going on? And Damasio ran a long battery of tests and what he discovered was that Elliot had lost the ability to feel and process emotion. Now, now, keep in mind that he still tested in the 97th percentile in intelligence, and he could enumerate every possible solution to any problem that you could pitch at him. He just couldn't pick one. He'd like go into his office and go, should I, should I do that thing my boss seems to really want me to do? Or would it be better to re-alphabetize my file folders again today? You know, if I do that, change the blue pen or the black pen. I mean, this, this really got me. Like at lunch, he'd go from restaurant to restaurant looking at menus, but he never went in because he didn't know what he felt like eating. I mean, think about that. Like if you never felt anything about anything, this notion that logic and data is what's going to tell us what to do. I mean, think about your own life. Like picture like your own beloved and now imagine that your beloved has been away for a month and you've really missed them. And now they're they're finally back and they're walking through the door and you look at them and you don't feel anything. (laughs) I mean, how would you even know they were your beloved? Would you look at the data? I mean, it really comes back to, to how we feel, and for my feeling, the takeaway always is: emotion isn't the monkey wrench in the system. Emotion is the system. Without emo- emotion, it's a survival mechanism. Without emotion, we wouldn't be here. Again, yeah, it telegraphs. Because it is through
0: it is through emotion that we create sense.
1: Well, yeah, exactly. Um, emotion is there literally to telegraph meaning. So that once we know something, and it gets relegated to our co- what's called our cognitive unconscious, which. Mm-hmm. Which is where we make most of the decisions we make. I mean, right. we make, they say, what, 35,000 decisions a day. And of those, we're only like consciously aware of 70
0: of them. Right. It's like it's like a tiny, we had Leslie Zane on to talk about the role of subconscious in marketing. Oh, yeah. It's,
1: yeah. Super yeah, fascinating. I wouldn't even call it subconscious. I like calling it cognitive unconscious because just because subconscious has such a, Such a I don't even know how to such such a like a a, a ephemeral way of thinking of it. And cognitive unconscious is not ephemeral. It is literally once we know something, the way that we're wired. I mean, what I'm fond of saying is sadly, we're wired to live in a world we don't live in anymore. So that we're wired to live in a world that once we're born, we are take we are we're looking for, well, we have what's called an avidity for patternicity, which is a, a great example of why you never want to use oh, a do you, what do you I know exactly. This is why you should never use like $25 words like ever. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> it's called an avidity for patternicity. And what that means in plain English, which is always best, is that we're constantly looking for patterns. If this, then yeah, that, yeah. from the moment we're born, you know, if I cry real loud, that nice person will come in and give me milk. Got it. Once, once we we found a familiar pattern that we can trust, it gets relegated to our cognitive unconscious. The problem is that that the wiring that we have was really set in place about a hundred thousand years ago, back when our brain had that last big growth spurt, and we were told at that time. This is what I'm sure most people were told. Certainly, what I learned was that that was because that was when we got the ability to you know think rationally, mm-hmm. think logically critical thinking and that's true that did happen then but what evolutionary biologists will tell us now is is that wasn't why we had that change the reason why was because at that point you know if we were going to do what for better or worse we've since done which is you know take over the world we needed to do that thing that we've been told to do since kindergarten which is we needed to learn to work well with others and at that point our need to belong to a group became as biologically hardwired as is our need for food air and water in other words We're all people who need people. When someone goes, I don't need anybody, I'm a lone wolf. I always want to say, you are aware that wolves travel in packs, aren't you? And that if you look it up, a lone wolf in the wolf community is a wolf that has done something so egregious that they've been ostracized and are left to die. But so the point is, is back when we had that big growth spurt, the world was really much simpler. In other words, nothing changed right, right. for eons. So once you you once you once learned something, once you saw a pattern, it was going to be that way forever. And once you learned something about your fellow compatriots, I mean, what's the number? There's a, a number, it's called Dunbar's number, uh, which is 150 from Robin Dunbar, who's an evolutionary biologist at Oxford. And he basically postulates that from back in the day up until now, given the way our brains are wired, that we can really pretty much keep track of about up to 150 people. That's about it. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, it gets very fuzzy and we can't really do it. And that's because back then that was it. I mean, our our groups, the tribes that we lived in, it wasn't 150 self-selecting people the way it would be now. It was 150 people. That's it. So that Once you learn something about the way the group worked or about someone or about the world, it made sense that your brain wouldn't code it as if it was permanent, as if that is just the way that things are. And so the problem now is, is that the world that we take in and the world that we see when we're young, because that is when we're trying to figure out how the world works. I mean, you may have heard of you know, Maslow's pyramid of needs, right? Yeah. Abraham Maslow, the American psychologist. And he says, okay, there's a pyramid of needs. Top is, you know, the pinnacle is like connection and sense of purpose. And he says the bottom- Self-actualization. Right. And the, But the first thing we need, the very bottom, he says food, water, shelter. And he's wrong because that is not the first thing we need. The first thing we need is somebody who cares enough about us to give us those things.
0: Well, he there there has been more evolution yes. of Maslow's hierarchy, which is to say he- he, I think it's around a definition, right? Cause he, cause what he put on the bottom rung was safety, but he defined that as physical safety. And so right. the evolution of it is to say, and I think this is what you're saying, which is, it's not just physical safety. It's actually psychological safety as well as physical safety. Well, yes, you know, because
1: psychological, right. Because we've evolved. Well, yeah. Well, not just, and not just even and the world has evolved. Well, no, Not just that. I mean, this goes back to the 100,000 years ago. Social safety means, and psychological safety means, I know what to do in order to stay alive, which means that what stories are about more than anything isn't about physical safety. Stories are about social safety. Mm. That's what we need. We need We need to figure out how to survive in the social world. That's what I meant by we need to have someone who cares enough about us to give us, to make, to keep us physically safe. And that means that when we're young, we're trying to figure out, okay, what do I need to, not not to make it sound totally transactional, (laughs) but, but we're trying to figure out with our parents, what do I need to do to keep them loving me? So they'll keep giving me food and shelter. And the thing is when we're young, we don't think what do my parents need, but you know what other parents and other cultures need different things. Other cultures need different, other religions need different things. We just think, this is how it, what it is to be human. So we are encoding that and we are encoding that as that is the way the world is, mm-hmm. as opposed to that is the way my world is. Right. I think, I mean, I want to
0: pause you there because this is a really important distinction. I could go on
1: and on and on. Yes, I know. Pause. <laughs> um,
0: because, and I want to bring it back to, you mentioned, you have to sort of, you didn't say it quite like this, but map story to story mm-hmm. and, you know, just, I guess, say, say a bit more about that. Because one, one of the things, one of the ways in which story can be powerful and also goes astray mm-hmm. uh, in, tr- in a marketing context is, is that with marketing, you are trying to, and I want to come back to this idea of maybe persuading, but I think it's worth discussing whether or not that's really the point or if it's about uh-huh. connection. But you are trying to use story strategically to try to, to you know, let, let's stick with connection or persuade or something. I mean, oftentimes, like if we don't do the work around target audience and personas and understanding yes. who's on the receiving end of the story, so therefore what they will hear, then you can miss the mark. Is that what you're talking about when you're saying
1: story for story? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying, which is you need to know your target audiences, what is their self-narrative? How are they making sense of things? What matters to them? It's not so much what they do. It's why they're doing it. Why they do it. it. That's what you're looking for. Because what you're looking for, I mean, if you have a call to action, something that you want people to do, whether it's buy my product or support my cause or, and it wouldn't just be support my cause. It would be the very specific thing you'd want them to do. This very specific, you know, boots on the ground, actual actionable call to action, But what you're looking for is, here's what I want them to do. Why aren't they doing it now as far as they're concerned, in their opinion, not in your opinion? I mean, the biggest problem we have is, you know, what in in their brilliant book, Chip and Dan Heath talk about the curse of knowledge. Yeah. Once we know something, we think everybody else knows it. It's really hard
0: for us to remind ourselves. I do this. I am terrible about being mindful of having the curse of knowledge. I just like roll on through.
1: I talk to my students about all
0: the time I am a terrible offender.
1: We all are. But the thing is, the thing is, and I think one of the, one of the things I always try to diffuse in everything I write is that it's not our fault. We're not doing it on purpose. It's not a weakness. It's that literally that is how we're wired. We are not wired to see the world as it is. We're wired to see the world as we are. Because what I just said a minute ago, when we take the world in as children, as, as babies trying to figure out how things work, we think that what we're what we're responding to is the world as opposed to our world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So once we learn something, it becomes encoded and it goes into what, what we have started to talk about before, which is our cognitive unconscious as a permanent fact. And so that becomes what I like to call the lens through which yeah, we yeah. do everything and through which we're reading that meaning into things. And again, the way that meaning is telegraphed to us is through emotion. I mean we don't make decisions based on our rational analysis of the situation. We make decisions based on how the rational analysis makes us feel that's that's mm-hmm. the way that it work it works. Are, are, there's so many ways in which our brain thinks it's helping us and it's not.
0: It's not helpful sometimes. I, I have to say that out loud to my brain. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for what you're trying to do for me. It's not serving me. <laughs> So, knock it off. But I see what you're doing there. And I see you are trying to be helpful. And I want to underscore this for listeners, which is in this is another quote from you. You say, facts do not convince us of anything because it's not how we're wired to take in information, not because we're stubborn, self centered, or egotistical, but because we are wired for story. Yes. Yeah. And because, in, you know, if we look at the larger context in which we're having this conversation, You know, it's pretty easy to go to well. That person's being egotistical or self-centered, or we can tell ourselves all these things, and just sort of like creating that space uh, in between that to remind ourselves that you know we're fitting we're fitting facts into a frame, and that frame was decided many many moons ago for each of us. But but also heartening, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, is that our brains, you know, have something called neuroplasticity. So in fact. We can evolve, but that does require some amount of awareness.
1: Well, and that brings us back to story though, because the two ways that we, I mean, there are three ways we can evolve. Obviously, if you really know there's a problem and you put a lot of thought and work and therapy into it, absolutely. But the two ways that are Just accessible always to everyone. One is through experience. If experience has taught you one thing and now another experience can certainly disabuse you of that. That is possible. But if we always needed experience to disabuse us of of things that we believe, a lot of us wouldn't have survived. The other way is through story. Because what story does is story really is the world's first virtual reality. Story really is, I mean, minus that geeky visor. I mean, they've done, uh, you know, fMRI studies that show when you're lost in a story, the same areas of your brain light up that would light up if you're doing what right. the, the protagonist is doing. The mirror neurons. You literally are there. I mean, that's when people talk about, about, oh, it's just mindless entertainment. I always want to say to people, you're being affected by stories every minute of every day, whether you know it or not. And usually you don't because there's no such thing as mindless entertainment. We are always affected by every story we hear. I like to redefine mindless entertainment to stories come into our gut because they make us feel something all life is emotion-based, if you couldn't feel emotion, you couldn't make a single rational decision. In a story, if it isn't emotion-based, if we're not feeling something, we're not paying attention. And so story comes into our gut, we feel it, it changes our beliefs and then we, we see the world differently and we act differently, but often some of those changes Go through our conscious brain, (laughs) so it pays to maybe stop and think about it a little, especially if a story has you fired up about something that you wouldn't have thought would have fired you up before it goes against something that you you know that you that you really deeply believed before. I Mm -hmm. think
0: yeah. I mean this I I think you know, because we marketing we think about mainly in organizational context. So to take us there for a minute. This idea of beliefs, and I love uh, this this reframe that you offered of a cognitive unconscious. You know, uh, beliefs are kind of hard to tap into. I think you have to be uh, kind of elevated or I don't know what <laughs> uh, to get there and, and to have the wherewithal to say like, why is this affecting me so much, positive or negative? Like, what is that? And does that connect to a belief I hold? And then, and this is why, you know, so I work with organizations, you know, I teach it at the University of Washington, but I also, you know, my other half is is as a consultant and and you know work increasingly uh, exclusively on what I refer to as identity statements. So mm-hmm. mission, vision, values, and purpose. And those values are so important to, to like extract. And it's not, you know, when I say to when I, when I'm talking to organizations, it's like you're not gonna like like you're not making it up. Values are something that are learned, I mean, this is for, if if you're a new organization, you, you know, that's a time to articulate what you want them to be like, what do you want to build into the DNA? But for existing organizations, it's already there. And I think so much of, you know, story is a way to unearth those. Um, So, you know, it's a, it's a way of extracting them. And once you have that nugget, it is so clarifying in terms of what's the story of this organization and how are we going to use that to then connect with other people that w- that also care about what we care about, right? I mean, I work with social impact organizations, um, so so that's always such a big piece of it. Is and that's I want to circle back to and hear you talk more about whether or not, again, in kind of an organizational context, that the highest use of story is around persuasion or is it around connection? Because in my framework. I really am thinking about marketing and storytelling and these as tools to help organizations connect with their believers. um, So other people who care about it, as opposed to trying to persuade what I refer to, thanks to Guy Kawasaki, as atheists. So if you have believers, agnostics, atheists, believers believe what you believe. Agnostics might believe, but you know, you have to chat longer to see where you're gonna land. But atheists don't believe what you believe. Like they have a different different set of, of beliefs and oftentimes we try to convert atheists because like our minds, it creates cognitive dissonance and we can't believe that somebody else doesn't believe what we believe. So, you know, you use the word persuasion a lot. And I, I'm just genuinely curious if if that's how you think of story.
1: Not at all. No, I don't. Pers-
0: mainly persuasion or connection or, or something else.
1: OK. OK. No, I don't. I mean, when I say persuade, I just mean I mean it in the most basic sense, meaning. If you're trying to change someone's mind about something, if you're trying to get them to do something they're not already doing, you're trying to persuade. That's how I use the word persuasion. Just how can I get you to do something that I think would benefit either you or the planet that you're not already doing?
0: So something that maybe doesn't. I mean, this is a space of like social marketing. So something that benefits the the greater good, as opposed to maybe, or not exclusively, but you as an individual, like the difference. I always go to toothpaste because it's such a handy example.
1: Because... <laughs> no, <you can>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Although I just learned from my parents that the tube of toothpaste may be going away as we get away from single use, and there's like toothpaste pellets or something. Anyway, sure. I digress. Point <laughs> being, though, when you need toothpaste, whether it's pellets or a tube, you're you're it's a must-have item. Whereas oftentimes, and you know, if I think about this in the context of public policy, we're asking folks to do things that they kind of know are the better thing to do, but there isn't much in it for
1: them personally. Right, and I just literally mean persuade in the simplest simplest form, meaning I want you to do something you're not already doing. I'll okay. stop. that's it. But to answer your question, the point of story is to find connection hundred percent okay that, that's the point of any mission statement that's the point of any of any whether it's advertising or whether it's a fundraising letter or or whatever it would be whatever form you're talking about it is connection if we can't connect, that's what I, when I said story to story, that's what, where is the place where they connect? Where is the place where what you're offering can give a benefit to the person who you want, whose behavior in one way or another, you want to change, give them a benefit, something that they themselves would see as a benefit. Not what you've decided is a benefit. Yes. Right. (laughs) that's, right, that's, right. That's the big problem that people have. I think this is a benefit. So of course everybody else does. And it's like, not really.
0: And, and at insult to injury, once you have the curse of knowledge, you tend to think more about the features as opposed to the benefits.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Right? Nobody. when you're trying to convince anyone of anything or, or in whatever words you want to use market or, or, you know, or, or, or connect, the last thing you want to do is try to prove something to somebody. <laughs> this is better. This is why I'm smarter. This is why, this is how great my product is. This is how great what I'm doing is. I, I saw that. I remember reading once it was, a, a pitch that I think it was from a museum and it was something like if you donate to us, we're going to have the number one art museum on the entire East Coast. Oh, I'm, I don't oh, I care oh, about that. that.
0: This <laughs> is, okay, I just have to vision statements that are self-reflective, meaning we, you know, we're organization awesome and our vision is to be the most awesome version of organization awesome. There's nothing wrong with that intention but that's not a vision that anybody outside of the organization is gonna care about. And this you know, I get very, talked about fired up, I get very fired up because oftentimes these, uh, the identity statements will be created when an organization is doing like strategic planning or rebranding or whatever. And so, you know, they're getting helped by folks who can kind of get them to a good enough point, but they're optimized for an internal audience And Mm -hmm. then they're like, well, it's the mission, future values, you know, so it's supposed to work externally, but exactly to your point, like if these have been optimized for an internal audience, you can't just plunk them on your website and expect them to resonate, which is why I really, and then you end up with two sets. So then you're managing two identities. That's Mm -hmm. very expensive and not advised, but it's actually, you know, I've seen it more often, but that, that, that additional work of like, okay, internally, we, that makes sense to us. How can we translate these in a way? that it still fires us up internally and guides us, but also will help us telegraph, to use your word, to folks outside of the organization, you know, clients, donors, volunteers, and and other. I mean, it's like such a good recruitment tool. I was just talking to a colleague of mine who uh, works for the Canadian government, um, and she was lamenting that the, you know, for for as values-driven as they're meant to be, they really don't put their values out there as a way to attract talent. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, your talent ends up being this like overlooked marketing asset. So anyway, that's why I get so worked up about the mission, vision, values, and purpose, because they're so underutilized. And each one of them, they're a story together about who you are and what you stand for as an organization. And then individually, you know, it's like little mini mini mm-hmm. stories, each of them. I, I'm guessing there are listeners who are thinking like that is all well and good for people who are like natural storytellers or good writers. And I, I just I want to quote directly from your homepage because this was so beautiful, and just hear you say a bit more about it. Which is, you say the story is what creates beautiful writing, not the other way around.
1: Yes, yeah. I mean, I mean, that, and that's something that I say to writers all the time. Which is, it's not about words. It's funny. I'm just doing consulting with a with a company, and and one of the women who who um, you know they're trying to sort of rebrand. And she she wrote me and she said you know you know full disclosure you know I'm not I'm not good at wordsmithing, and it's like I wish I I wish she was right there in front of me and I could say do you know how much the word wordsmithing makes my teeth hurt, you know <laughs> it's it such a because it's not about the words it's about what you're trying to convey and the truth is really almost always the simplest most conversational most down home most open and honest words are what grab people. The notion of being a writer is wrong. As I say to writers, I say this probably six times a day, which is everything you've been been taught about writing and story is wrong. It's just wrong. It does not have to do with being a good writer because we think being a good writer has to do with words. And then somehow we get tangled up in finding the right words. And it's like the right words for what? it's what you're trying to say and what you offer and like i say the simplest humblest words are always the best it's meaning words by themselves are nothing i mean what's a word a word is a it's a sound you know when you speak it it's a, it's a you know lines on the page it's you know your hands moving in sign language it's it's empty words are empty they're an empty vehicle they're there for meaning what are you trying to say what matters to you and the scary part i think is that in order to get to that place, you have to be vulnerable. That's why people go to fat
0: Yeah, that's funny. That's where I actually wanted to, well, I had, our, our second to last question. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to come back to this. So we had Maria Ross on the show to talk about how empathy can give you an edge in business. Like it's not just a woo-woo thingy dingy. But you say empathy is the key to understanding and vulnerability is the key to communicating.
1: 100%. I mean, that's, if I could just say something... And I might go, I might go far afield with this, but if if we have the time, I really want to hit on that the notion of empathy and emotion and story versus being rational and logical and using data. Do we have a, a few minutes for that? Yeah, that go for it. Okay, here's the thing: we have been sold a bill of goods. The notion. The cornerstone of Western thought, which I think comes from Plato, which is this notion of that, that what we are supposed to do, the most, the highest good, the, the best in terms of being human is to be rational and logical and look at things objectively. And that is what we need to strive for. And that is what, how we should make, make, make all of our decisions. And the opposite, the nemesis of being rational and logical is emotion. And emotion's goal is to make a, have us make a bad decision because it's it's going to knock the logic apart. And so we need to be very careful of emotion and thinking about emotion. We must keep it at bay in order to make any sort of a decision. And biologically, that is 100% not true. So you are just humbly begging to differ with Plato?
0: 100%. He okay, good. A- I mean, I just wanted us to be clear about what was happening. He was <laughs> at-
1: By the way. He was as wrong as Aristotle was when Aristotle said plot first, character second. Mm. (laughs) Talk about that if you want to. Mm. But the point is, yeah, he was really wrong. He was wrong. And I think the reason that we so embrace the we've got to think of things factually, we've got to think of things rationally and logically and, quote unquote, unemotionally, meaning there's no meaning to it. It's just some not only an objective fact but as if all the meaning within the fact is also somehow imbued in the fact is objective as well. And as we were just talking about, that just simply isn't true. It just isn't simply how we are wired to make sense of things. And if we could, we could never make a single rational decision. The opposite is true. That notion of of facts as being hard science and story as being a soft science is wrong. It's just literally one hundred percent wrong. It is, it is the notion that we use facts and you know and objective data to make decisions, is 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 a myth. We we don't and we can't and we shouldn't because it wouldn't work.
0: Yeah, and if folks are interested in this, I would definitely encourage you to go listen to that episode with c Zane because she she talks more about you know the cognitive consciousness. You say, Lisa. And mm-hmm. You know, like it's a little startling, I think, because we have been fed this bill of goods, as you say, um, around like rational and logical and all of these things. And then you're like, oh, my God, I I am only aware of even like five percent of what's going on. Yes. So all of this stuff happens under the under the surface. Is a
1: little scary. Yeah, it is. It's unsettling. But that's why, I mean, if you want to look at it, I think that's why we have been sold this bill of goods that it's about being rational and logical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because it makes us feel what we most want to feel, which is in control. And emotion does the opposite. The goal of emotion is to yank us out of feeling control and to go, look over there, That, that really matters. You better pay attention to that now. And it's scary. And I think that We've been sold. I mean, the bill of goods that we've been sold. Interestingly, um, uh, you know, really has to do with so much of the the social construct of what is rational, what is logical, and what emotion is. And I think it's 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 very gendered, um, to be quite frank with yeah, you.
0: Yeah, actually, I'm really glad that you went there. It's gendered, and also, I was gonna, you know, I just always want to point out the ways in which language has been used as a tool of oppression and you know, that uh, who, who is, who is, who are the ones saying what is logical, right. Versus what is, you know, those darn emotions that are getting in the way. It's really important to call out.
1: Yeah. I think that, I mean, I mean, to, <laughs> to say it bluntly, I think that what keeps us trapped, what keeps us so trapped is fear, which is heightened by those social norms, which are different for each gender. I think it's fear of emotion if you're male and it's fear of, what the patriarchy will do to you if you express emotion if you're female. And I think that's what keeps us trapped in that in that false belief.
0: Thank you for saying that so bluntly, Lisa. yeah,
1: I mean, I I think, <laughs> I, I think that that is a hundred percent what's true. and it's I think it's why you know, we think of story as something soft and something is, yes, we read kids stories for bed. And if you need some emotion, if you can't make up your mind just by the facts, all right, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll humor you and give you a story. Sure, and sure. It, it just literally doesn't work that way. It's just, it's not how we're making any decision ever. I mean, I think it's funny. I think that, that, that the pen ultimate fear, and I think this is like pan human Our penultimate fear is of emotion, but the thing we're most afraid of is being emotionless, you know, like you see those movies or TV, hopefully this never happened to you, where, you know, the person's walking down the alleyway and someone's coming at them and they go, and their face was expressions, they had dead eyes, you know, and that's terrifying. Emotion drives everything. Emotion drives memory the reasons we have memories. the reason they say that you know that anything uh, anything learned in a story is is 22 times more memorable is because all story is emotion based and emotion is what causes us to remember things.
0: I want to say this one more time because I'm, I'm hoping that something listeners will really hear and kind of like inspire. I mean, if people are listening, they're like, okay, stories, we can do this thing. Like they're not, you know, soft as you say, like this is based in biology and science and okay, go get them. Like 22 times more effective Yes. to tell yeah. a story. That's good math. Yeah. Right. Like just from a sheer like
1: business bottom line perspective, that's good math right because think about it if you know what matters to your audience and you've got some fact and again this is what story does it takes you know those dry facts abstract concepts and it spins them into something very 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 specific boots on the ground which makes it accessible to that one system by which we make every decision we ever make which is our emotion because we come to every story or really think about it in your own life it's like in your own life you are the protagonist and everything that you see, everything that you do, every other person that you know, no matter how much you love them, is a supporting player. And you take in everything and you think, how is this going to affect me, given my agenda? As I said in the beginning, is it going to help me or is it going to hurt me?
0: And again, not because you're a jerk. This no. is just how we're hardwired. Just, we I mean, like, no,
1: I don't. That would make me a jerk. No, it makes you human. I mean, but it doesn't, because when I say, is it going to help me or hurt me, I don't mean like, is this going to give me the most money? Is this going to make me the most popular? It's is this going to make me feel like, to use a very hackneyed phrase at the moment, my most authentic self. And a person's most authentic self can often be, I've, you know, I joined the Peace Corps. You know, I mean, I don't like the term altruism because it sounds like we would do things for absolutely no return. And we never do that. I I, I like the term which I made up and I have no idea. And I I don't like it because this other word carries baggage, but selfish altruism. Because what it means is, is when we're out there, you know, giving everything up to be for the Peace Corps, we feel good about ourselves because we're doing something that in our world, in our worldview matters. And we're always looking for that. Is this going to make me feel good about myself? Is this going to make the people in my group, in my community, feel good about me? That's how- And will I
0: look good to the people in my group? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, Lisa, exactly. the story I'm telling myself right now is that you're amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I feel privileged that you have played us su- have been a supporting character in <laughs> this thing called my life. <laughs> I, like I told <laughs> listeners at the beginning, like, I mean, it's just the gift you have given the world through not wordsmithing, but literally through your words and your ability to help us understand how like, you know, story is just absolutely everywhere, uh, but also like the, the real practical reasons to, uh, to embrace story and, to, yeah, you know, kind of to feel like less of a jerk about the facts and figures and why they do or don't, don't work. Uh, I just so appreciate it. Oh, and listeners though, I, I mean, another thing that you, that like, I really want to underscore, at least has me mentioning again and again, is like in an organizational context, right? So if you're using story, uh, to drive sales or get more donors or whatever, you do have to do that, get that story to story connection. So if you're curious about a bit more about that, go back and listen to episode five about who are your true believers. Okay. So Lisa, um, at the, I ask every guest um, this question, just so we can get a sense of, of them and you is about what motivates you and what inspires you. So inspiration that etymologically is to take breath in and motivation is about action. What motivates and inspires you to keep telling and talking about stories?
1: Um, well, I, to be 150% honest, I want to take the patriarchy down. And I think this is the only way to do it. And I think we've been sold a bill of goods. I think that when you look at the history of the world, I, I read a, a statement recently or a statistic saying that, you know, growing up and going through, you know, the K through 12, that's something like only 17% of, of the people who we learn from, meaning you know in, in textbooks, et cetera, are female. I think that that we've really been sold a bill of goods in terms of this notion of what's rational and logical and what we should do and what emotion is. And I really want to flip that because at the end of the day, I think that so much has been vilified that is what's human and that is actually what's good about us. And I would just really love to flip that script because I feel like, to be really honest, you're asking me a really personal question and I'm being vulnerable right now, which I think is the key thing, is that I look at my own life and I think about how different things would have been had I not been pushed into a very gendered, you know the gendered role meaning not just meaning this is the definition of what it means to be female which i think is 100% wrong i think that what they tell you it means to be male and what it means to be female is 100% wrong i think <laughs> i don't think any of that behavior i the words masculine and feminine make my skin crawl because i think that they are societal constructs i think that we are all the same and we are all human and I want to see that. I personally don't identify with either gender. I never won't know what to say when people have like, what are your pronouns? I feel like for me, it's like, it's complicated
0: mm-hmm. because
1: I don't identify with either one. Because I think they're social constructs. I don't think either one are true, to tell you the truth.
0: So do you prefer they, them
1: pronouns? No, I don't. No, No, not at all. No, because I don't think that's accurate either. I don't because, first of all, it's grammatically confusing. And second of all, for me, they, them sounds like you're going to take masculine and feminine and put them together. And I don't think either one are true. Mm. So I think we're just wrong. I think we're wrong about what we think of when we've come up with this is what male is and this is what female is. I just think it's wrong. And I think that I think that because I probably shouldn't say, say this, I think because men are so terrified of women <laughs> that, you know, that women end up are allowed to feel and to be much more human than men are allowed to be. And I think that's sad. I think it's sad for men.
0: Don't I don't even know where to that. start you
1: with. can cut all this out.
0: No, I'm not going to cut it out. No, no, gosh, no. No, out. that would go against you know, my values. <laughs> I, you know, they yeah. you are entitled to your opinions. You should not be edited. That should not be edited out at all. That is your truth. Uh,
1: that, is, that, that is That is your is, truth. That
0: is my truth. Is not for me to say either way.
1: I think we're all human. And I think yeah. that empathy is the key. And I don't think it's woo-woo. I don't think it's, I think empathy is the key. And I think that we're terrified of it. And I think that empathy is the only way to ever connect with anybody else.
0: Yeah. Lisa, thank you for being that vulnerable. I really do appreciate it. And I know listeners will, whether or not they agree or disagree is beside the point. You have modeled what it can look like to create connection when you're vulnerable and I, re- I really, really appreciate that. In addition to the vast array of uh, golden nuggets that you have offered, I-, I-, I just thank you so much. And I truly hope listeners will check out all your books. Um, story or Die is Lisa's latest and greatest. Uh, and you can find that on wiredforstory.com. Yeah, keep telling your story. All the stories. of uh, You, Lisa, <laughs> keep telling your stories, but also listeners do good, be well, and listeners, I will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Marketing for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, subscribe, review, and share on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about Claxon University, how to make more impact in and for your organization, or hiring me to speak or coach, go to claxonmarketing.com or reach out at info at claxonmarketing.com. Again, thanks for listening and thanks for making our world a better place.